Something you might not be aware of, Montreal, Canada is a hotbed of research in artificial intelligence. Today, we'll be hearing about the intersection of academia and startups and what companies are doing and need to be doing to leverage the emerging technologies of deep learning and AI. Welcome to the Impact Podcast. I'm John Pryor. Today on the Impact Podcast, we're joined by Ben Wild from Georgian Partners, who recently sat down with two entrepreneurs from Montreal, both of whom are deep into the machine learning field. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Yes, we were lucky enough to get some time with a couple of machine learning practitioners who have been heavily involved with deep learning, and in particular, the research that's coming out of the University of Montreal. Uh, and of course, Montreal is the home of Yoshua Bengio who is considered uh, one of the three fathers of deep learning, along with uh, Jeff Hinton and Jan Lacan. So, Ben, Jeff's affiliated with the University of Toronto, but also Google, and Jan's affiliated with Facebook and New York University. So where are we going with all this? Well, there are a couple of things that struck me from the conversation. One was the uh, opportunities for smaller companies to access the research and talent coming out of Montreal uh, in deep learning. Um, and, and, What's interesting there is that the University of Montreal is, appears to be taking a different approach in terms of linking uh, technology from academia uh, with smaller companies and startups. But the other thing uh, that I think was particularly interesting for entrepreneurs uh, to be aware of is that there are some real gotchas that companies need to think about when they're looking to take uh, some of this cutting-edge machine learning, deep learning research out of the lab and uh, start to create a business around it. Thanks. Let's have a listen. Look, thanks, guys, uh, for taking the time to be on the podcast today. What I'd like to do is uh, start off with a little bit of background on you both. Nicola, you received your PhD from the University of Montreal uh, in machine learning, I believe. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, what you're doing now, uh, and how you got there? Um, so I got my PhD with uh, Joshua Bengio at... Um University of Montreal. So uh, I started actually my my initial background is uh, studying engineering at uh, McGill University. I started my career doing speech recognition um, for a big lab uh, that Nortel was um, running back in the day uh, close to Montreal. That gave me the taste for machine learning. I was uh, a, a programmer in the speech recognition research lab, the least uh, qualified, the least educated person in that lab debugging uh, people with PhDs code. And that really gave me uh, the taste for uh, machine learning and research and uh, had me go back uh, to uh, university, do my master's and PhD uh, in machine learning with uh, Joshua Bengio. So initially I, I studied uh, the combination of neural networks with uh, portfolio modeling and, and financial modeling. With Bengio uh, in the early 2000s we started a technology transfer company called AppStat uh, whose purpose was to uh, take some of the innovations that we had developed uh, in the lab in an academic setting and apply it more broadly uh, in industry. Um, so we did work on uh, insurance risk modeling. Uh, we worked also uh, in, in portfolio management. We co-managed uh, co a hedge fund with a big Canadian bank. 
We also did some uh, signal processing, uh, signal recognition work for the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, also worked in uh, schedule optimization with uh, Jean-François's previous company that we will come back to uh, later. And um, more recently, I've been involved in a, in a new startup called Imagia, whose purpose is to take all uh, the incredible innovations uh, that uh, have been coming out of deep learning over the past few years and apply that into the field of medical image analysis, uh, more specifically uh, detecting cancer tumors. Thanks a bit, Nicola. Jean-François, you're currently an entrepreneur in residence over at Real Ventures. Could you tell us a little about what you've been doing previously as well and also what you're focusing on now uh, in that new role? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's been uh, quite a ride. I've been um, interacting with uh, Real Ventures uh, for a while now, uh, being their uh, first uh, fund to investment. Uh, that was back in uh, 2010. Uh, and uh, also one of their first large exits uh, in 2012, uh, sold my last company, it was called Planora. Uh, kind of mentioned that's uh, how we how we met, um, interacting together and building some uh, very interesting uh, machine learning technologies and applied it to uh, what Planora used to do uh, around uh, workforce uh, management and workforce optimization tools uh, for uh, for enterprise. Um, and I mean, I sold to uh, to a company called uh, Red Prairies uh, in 20, uh, 2012, uh, and uh, from there, uh, got promoted to uh, chief product officer role. So, managed product innovation there for two years and a half, and uh, decided to go back uh, to uh, uh, smaller companies and startups uh, last July. Uh, after uh, spending three years over there. Uh, so um, uh, Real Venture invited me to join them as an entrepreneur in residence so I could uh, learn and interact with uh, startups uh, that are uh, all across Canada. So JF, could you explain a little bit more about what a entrepreneur in residence does and uh, you know, day to day? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my role and the way we've, we, we've, uh, we've uh, carved it here uh, is to help uh, portfolios companies uh, with the knowledge and skills, um, sharing my and, and contributing my network to them, uh, helping them uh, you know, go after uh, tackling the different opportunities they have in front of them. Uh, so that's one, helping portfolio companies. Second one is also uh, assessing and being part of due diligence. Uh, for uh, companies that are within, again, my field of expertise, enterprise software, uh, AI, uh, machine learning, and uh, optimization. Uh, and uh, also help um, real ventures uh, kind of build and, and um, progress in their thesis and understanding of uh, the domain uh, around uh, AI and machine learning that is really booming here uh, in Montreal. Is there any particular size of company or, I mean, you're typically investing slightly earlier in the cycle than uh, Georgian Partners. Could you talk a little bit about that age and stage of your ideal investment? 
Yeah, um, Real Ventures focus uh, on um, uh, seed investments mostly, so enterprise that, uh, and companies that are focusing on building uh, their product, uh, building their team, uh, still investigating exactly uh, what's the, the, the correct value prop and what's the right way to message uh, their offering. Uh, up to the point where they figured out, uh, figured out uh, all these things and are starting to be like uh, re generating revenue and growing, which is often a stage that we relate to uh, in, in, in venture capital uh, as uh, the, the Series A stage, uh, which, I, which I think that you guys uh, at the Georgian start investing in. Got it. Nicola, could you talk a little bit about what it really takes to incorporate machine learning into an early stage company. Uh, because there's a lot of talk about this idea that, you know, the next 10,000 startups are going to, uh, the idea is, you know, you take idea X and you add machine learning. But could you talk a little bit about the realities of that and, you know, maybe where companies should start thinking and looking and, and how organizations uh, like, those that you're involved with or Mila um, at the University of Montreal can help? Yes, of course. So, so the, the first thing to understand is that machine learning is really uh, a consequence of having data. So the first essential ingredient is to have data and usually the more of it you have, the better it is. So, so I like to say machine learning is an obvious consequence of big data that has been popular uh, in the past couple of years. Now, when, when you're a startup, obviously the big problem is that you don't have big data to work with. Usually big data is the result of having a lot of customers uh, leaving behind a ton of transaction data, a ton of personal details. Uh, and when you're starting out, what do you do? You, you don't have those, those data elements available. So, the, the prerequisite really is to have a reasonably clear picture of what you're trying to accomplish in the marketplace, what your product is going to be uh, doing, and uh, put together the mechanisms to acquire this data, either through uh, well-structured MVPs that will save as much as possible uh, the interactions that uh, early users are generating or to uh, be creative and, and get uh, data from third-party sources that you can leverage in uh, useful ways. Um, one of the, uh, the biggest uh, transformative elements in the machine learning community and more specifically the computer vision community uh, in the past few years has been the availability of those big public data sources. For example, there is a standard database in computer vision called ImageNet that uh, consists of 14 million images. They are uh, publicly available. A lot of them are sourced on Flickr. They are all tagged with useful labels that uh, give uh, the contents of what's inside uh, the image itself. So if you want to train uh, a high quality image classification model, you can download this, this public data set, uh, set a computer uh, to run for one week, and you know after one week you will get uh, your trained ImageNet model. This simply 10 years ago was, was not available. 
So, so Nicola, could, could you talk a little bit more about that? Because with your with Imagia, you're doing. My understanding is you're doing some very specific um, image analysis, uh, in particular in cancer. So, how transferable is the training that happens on a public data set of internet? You know images and cats and things like that to to being able to, to go into another domain and is that something that's a characteristic of deep learning this ability to create models which are quite flexible uh, and then also could you talk a little bit about if you've got specific data like where has that come from in the case of, of the magia yes of course so what we're trying to do first at Imagia is uh, to apply deep learning and translate the amazing advancements that we have seen in the deep learning community over the past couple of years to uh, become clinically available and help patients. So help physicians diagnose uh, things like cancer tumors more effectively, uh, more quickly and with fewer errors. Um, so, of course, to train uh, useful uh, classification models, uh, especially deep learning models, we need lots of visual data. Um, medical Im uh, imaging data, by its nature, tends to be relatively scarce because you have those patient consent issues uh, and the fact that there are just not that many patients with you know, a very specific type of liver uh, tumors. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, anybody can take lots of pictures with their smartphones. There, there, there's tons of pictures available uh, of general objects. Um, what people have been recognizing over the past few years is that um, deep learning models uh, have this, this amazing ability to um, be transferable to some extent. Between, uh, between fields. So we can take, for example, um, a model trained on one million general images. Uh, we let it train for one week so that it learns to become very good at classifying general images that we see in everyday life. And then we can take this trained model, um, do a post-processing operation that we call fine-tuning, which is essentially taking the, the initial train model and adjusting its parameters according to a much smaller database that would correspond in our case to um, very specific medical imaging data. So you do some initial training on say tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of images and then you do some fine tuning on a data set that's more in the hundreds or thousands of images. Is that how it works? This is exactly how we do it, yes. Yeah, okay. And uh, the, the performance compared to training from scratch using only a thousand medical images is much better if we, uh, is much better um, if we do this pre-training with you know, a million general purpose images first. So that's really interesting. So the University of Montreal is particularly known for what types of models and and and, and research around uh, image analysis. Could you talk a little bit about those? Just not in too much detail, but just give us a bit of a flavour for the particular type of approach. Yes. So so um, the, the, 
the first thing to know is that Yoshua Benjo is an outstandingly prolific researcher and uh, by by far the most productive person I know. Over the, the span of his more than 20 year uh, career, he worked on uh, a great, great variety of models in a great variety of uh, application domains. Uh, most recently, the lab has been most known for its uh, incredible breakthroughs in sequence processing models, especially natural language processing or NLP. So um, the, some of the recent work that came out of the lab are automatic neural translation models. So models that can take a sentence, let's say in French and output the translation in English in a completely uh, data-driven fashion. We don't do uh, a rule-based translation that uh, we would used to do in the, in the old days. This is uh, completely uh, a single um, neural network model that is trained to take an arbitrary sequence of English words as input and output its translation uh, in a different language. So it's doing it, it's it's doing the pattern matching rather than um, requiring a human to define a bunch of rules ahead of time and then have those rules executed uh, to exactly. do the translation. And those models are, are trained on uh, aligned corpora. So let's say you are in the Canadian Parliament and all the debates have to be translated in both French and English then you are very lucky because you have this corpus of aligned sentences. You know that one English sentence is the translation of that very specific French sentence, and you have the raw data that you need to train your models to translate from French to English or from English to French. Got it. But in addition to the, I guess, the NLP, there's been quite a number of breakthroughs around it. Is it the application of CNNs or convolutional neural networks to image matching because that yes. sounds uh, like that's what's become Imagia. Yes, of course. So, so uh, the type of models that, that that apply more to visual processing indeed are CNNs. Mm. And what uh, Benjo's lab has uh, been doing that's, that's really uh, significant in the past couple of months are uh, automatic caption generation models. So models that are part uh, CNN-based and part sequence processing-based, and that given an image as an input will generate a complete English sentence or an English paragraph that describe the contents of that image. So some of the, the most uh, innovative and, and highest performing caption generation work came out recently. Interesting. Now, in terms of how that research is coming to market and showing up in new products, of the three universities known for deep learning, the, where the other two are University of Toronto and NYU, Montreal appears to be taking a pretty strong independent approach to its research, and in particular not aligning with any one corporate partner. Now, given your background, can you talk a little bit more about what you see as the thinking there and why that's important um, from an innovation perspective? Yes, so, so I, I guess that's a fair assessment. Uh, it, is, it is often said that uh, modern deep learning has three major co-founders or founding fathers, if you will. 
so we, we have Jeff Hinton at uh, University of Toronto, now at Google uh, most of his time. Yann Lequin, uh, who had a long and illustrious career, but most recently was at NYU and is now uh, head of Facebook AI research. And um, Joshua Benjo at University of Montreal. Um, and Benjo really has uh, the last very large academic research lab um, in deep learning that has uh, no um, uh, preferred industry attachment. So Benjo uh, will take uh, quite a bit of money from uh, many different companies, but is very strict about his policy to uh, that his research should all be put in the public domain and published freely. And companies that will fund the lab get no preferred access to the IP that is generated by the lab as, as a general rule, as a general policy. It, that looks like, it sounds like a great model. And uh, it, I think, creates uh, an opportunity in Montreal for smaller companies. Absolutely. Uh, we see that when we see the ecosystem uh, and people collaborating, there's also a lot of labs uh, from larger corporations that have opened in Montreal um, to get access to not only the talent, but maybe being close to what's happening. Um, as, as some of you may know, like uh, out of papers and research, there's some interesting things that you can learn. But uh, it's, it's it's small in uh, small in comparison to what you can actually learn from the people who have made the research. So being close to the environment and to the ecosystem, connecting uh, directly, uh, is worth a, a lot. And a lot of people are recognizing that and, and are moving and establishing themselves here in Montreal. So Jayev, Nicola mentioned that machine learning is the obvious consequence of big data. So changing tack for a moment, can you talk a little more about what you are seeing in terms of the availability of data today and what the implications and the opportunities are of that for early stage companies? Um, you'll see, it, what we see uh, is AI, machine learning and optimization, because I'll group them uh, kind of as a one big thing, uh, or what we used to say in the past, automation, and we tried to move away from that word because uh, in, in terms of uh, industry trend or buzzword, uh, because it, it relates sometimes to rule-based systems. Um, but in reality, what we're seeing here is that um, with, with certain trends in the market, like either you can talk about um, the cost of sensors that went down, uh, all the new information that we can acquire now with our cell phones, uh, all the sensors that we have there, uh, we're starting to generate uh, new types of data, new types of insights that can now close the loop in processes that were happening that back in the day systems had no, had no oversight on. So what, what's happening, it's not only that we are getting access to more data, but we get more information at different points in time and processes, which then, you know, giving that information, we can now leverage that to make smarter decisions or just simply automate these decisions. Um, and, and I mean, it's just, it's just natural as you're closing the loop uh, to then 
compare and have a metric to measure yourself, you know, how good you're performing it. And again, if you have all the data point and you're, you have the decision-making process that is all automated, like why not learn from that to get better at it? So, I mean, I don't want to uh, oversimplify stuff, but basically what we're seeing is that uh, giving all the trends, the sensors, like the Internet of Things, uh, the computing power that is available, I mean, all these things have been going on for a while now. We now have access uh, from, from, for a startup very cheaply uh, to, to, we have opportunity to automate like processes that haven't been automated in the past. And when you get these opportunities, often what happens is that you can start disrupting the current models that was based on, on uh, old, old premises that are no longer true. So, JF, it's, it's, you talked a, a bit about automation there, but it's really, if we look at what Imagio are doing and what Nicola is doing, it's a lot of that's around augmentation as well, isn't it? Do you, Nicola, do you want to talk a little bit about that vision as well? Because this isn't really about just about taking humans out of the loop. And a lot of use cases, it's about smarter decisions for humans, right? Yes, of course. So, so the, the whole premise behind Imagia, if, if you will, is to add a layer of information, of actionable information on top of raw medical imaging data. So, so it used to be the case that a radiologist would see a scan and those scans are very complex 3D depictions of what goes on inside a human being and then painstakingly analyze it slice, slice per slice and there can be hundreds of those slices that, that uh, he would need to go through in order to find um, what is an anomaly inside the body and eventually if that anomaly is a pathology. What we want to do is to be able to overlay uh, some, some automated analysis that will point the physician in the right direction and say, well, out of all the 200 slices that comprise this scan, I think you should go look at slice number 39 because it is the most likely to contain some anomalous lesion. So if we can order cases in this way and uh, have the caseload of the doctor ordered from, you know, the, the most... Um, uh, the most severe patient down to the likely normal cases, then we can have a much more effective, uh, um, we can make much more effective use of the doctor's uh, intellect and ultimately the whole healthcare system becomes more uh, effective as well. So that's really our vision is to, to use those predictive models uh, to remove frictions inside the system and make everybody operate more uh, effectively. Uh, and uh, more generally, all uses of machine learning that are good at, at doing predictions and optimization algorithms that will take those predictions and turn them into optimal decisions. You can view them as ways of reducing friction inside any economic system that you can think of. So the big news recently was that Google have uh, gone ahead and open sourced their TensorFlow deep learning framework. Nicola, could you talk a little bit about your perspective on that, um, how useful you think it might be and what it could mean for 
uh, the commercialization of, of deep learning into uh, bigger solutions and products? Yes, so so TensorFlow was the big big news release of uh, two weeks ago. Um, Google basically took their entire uh, C++ and Python deep learning framework, packaged it very nicely, uh, and released it out to the open. Now, to be fair, they, they took uh, the single processor, single computer version of it. So the whole internal TensorFlow at Google is reputed to scale to many thousands of computers to, to do its job. Google released only a portion of that. Um, the, I, I think the nice part about TensorFlow is that uh, the library itself is developed by dozens of well-paid, highly competent software engineers. So we get a very high, high quality library that's uh, being released. Um, there are other uh, open source machine learning libraries available, including one that's been developed uh, in Bengio's lab at the University of Montreal called Fiano, that functionally speaking does very much the same thing that TensorFlow is doing. And Fiano has been available for uh, six or seven, seven years now. So it's, it's, it's very old compared to TensorFlow. Uh, it's been uh, kept current and updated uh, on a regular basis, but uh, the, the number of people working on Piano is uh, tiny compared to what the resources that Google can put behind TensorFlow. So going back to Fiano, can you explain a little bit more about how that works and what types of problems it's particularly suited to? Yes, of course. So, so Fiano at, at its core is a library that lets you be very creative about machine learning algorithms that can be trained with gradient-based algorithms. So this sounds a little bit technical, but basically it is a very good fit to any neural network model that you can think of. Uh, Fiano really started out at, as a, a single... A uh, single processor library uh, that could offload much of its work to uh, graphical processing units or GPUs um, that speed up um, neural networks by a factor of 1,000. Um, so Fiano is very good at that. It's, it's not very good at scaling out to multiple computers on a cluster. So it, it really hits bottlenecks there, there. There are some people who have been working on distributed piano, but that work remains uh, experimental right now. Uh, that being said, it, is, uh, it remains to this day the workhorse of many, many machine learning researchers, uh, a large number of, of deep learning papers uh, that are being written by academic groups either here in Montreal or uh, elsewhere across the world. Uh, use Fiano as their go-to tool to train deep learning models. So that, that's a really good point uh, on that. There's, there seems to be a, a, a gap between the, where the state of the art is in deep learning or in research and the engineering of software solutions based on deep learning. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because you're trying to close that gap, obviously, with Imagia. You've, you know, you've done this stuff before with AppStat where you're dropping these ideas and algorithms into larger um, bodies of software. So can you just talk a bit, a bit about the practicalities of taking what is clearly very effective research and turning that into 
amazing product. Yes. Uh, um, how can I start with this? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy. Let's just say that. It's no, I mean, and that's the thing, right? In the media, it's portrayed, there, it is somewhat portrayed as a solved problem. But, you know, the, the new, I think the, it seems to me the nuances around training and, and um, uh, tuning are, uh, you know, are still, there's still work being done. Yes, we've got a lot more data. Yes, we've got much faster, bigger computers. It's at that the point of how do you, um, bring those algorithms to life inside a, a real software environment, that seems to be where maybe projects like TensorFlow have a, a, a stronger role to play. But I, I think, I think the, 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 the fact that it's that hard, explain a little bit like the, the rise in salaries that you've seen uh, for experts and, yep. uh, and, and why there's so much pressure in the market to get uh, very highly talented people. I think that that, that gap is, uh, is obvious and it shows uh, starting there. Yeah, so, so I, I guess the, the, the little known secret reality of deep learning is that not everything is written in the papers. There, there remains, so you will read, you know, uh, researchers saying, oh, we solved this problem using this kind of architecture, train on this data and so on and so forth. What you don't see is that they trained models for weeks and weeks on a cluster of computers to decide, you know, how to tune uh, the, the architectural parameters, what we call the hyperparameters that go into why this particular network that has, you know, uh, 4,096 hidden units in this layer as opposed to this one that has, you know, twice as many hidden units. So there is a lot of engineering that's hidden into training neural networks, and it's, it's a big part of the gap to bring useful solutions to market. You need to worry about robustness. You need to worry about, okay, I'm not just writing a paper that will be read by uh, 500 people, but I'm, I'm actually deploying a net that will be used by doctors every day on flesh and bones patients, and that must never fail. And the, the gap is to be able to ensure that your net is robust enough to face the, the real world deployment. So Ben, to summarize, what would you tell the leadership team of a startup that recognizes the need to leverage some of this technology? Look, the key is is really getting access to talent. It's a similar challenge that you face, you know, any organization faces in any of these newer technology areas. Uh, and it's certainly been a challenge in the case of applied analytics, uh, you know, getting access to that data science talent. But with deep learning in particular, it's going to be more complicated because the number of people with the knowledge is smaller and I think that's where partnering with academia and transitioning that know-how and talent uh, into industry is going to be really key. Uh, and of course, in addition to those skills, you need data. And you're probably going to need a lot more data than you have today. And as we've talked about before on lots of podcasts, it is all about the data. That's great, Ben. Thanks for being with us. And thanks to everyone for listening. This is John Pryor for the Impact Podcast.